partly because I wasn't recording yet, partly because I actually totally missed everything you said. Can we start with <laughs> what is it we're actually talking about today? We're talking about Stormy Delarvier, um, who is a badass, and literally when I was researching her, I started crying. Good. Good. I should say. Nah, I feel like that's good for now. Okay, cool. Um, hi, I'm Aubrey, the uninformed voice of Snark in the room. <coughs> pronouns also they, them. I'm Megan, and my pronouns are she, her. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. All right, should so we inform Stormy... our listeners about how I know Megan? <laughs> we met at nerd camp seven years ago. <laughs> that's actually a very important story, and yes. <laughs> it's, it's good content. Oh my god. We were roommates. It was seven years ago. I'm still pulling up my notes because mm-hmm. I am a stellar human being. Okay. Oh, it's in volunteering because I'm not getting paid to do this. Good. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about Stormy Delarvier, who was such a badass. Um, also, I misspoke in a previous episode. I said she was white. She was not white. She was um, half black and half white. And actually, it was her father who was white. Um, and her mother was a servant in her father's house. And uh, she was born at a time when interracial marriage was illegal. So um, she was born out of wedlock as the child of a servant and the master of the house. And she was uh, biracial. So. Like, oh. things were pretty stacked against her from the beginning. She was born on Christmas Eve, 1920. Um, and then she was born in New Orleans. And she died on May 24th, 2014. Yeah. In Brooklyn. So she's, like, she's definitely still a figure. Mm-hmm. Because she only passed away really recently. And it's, like, tragic that I didn't have any idea who she was because she was so cool. She was alive while we were people with political ideas. Yeah, yeah. We well, existed in the same time frame. She was alive when I knew I was gay. Like, I feel like this is a thing that we're going to look back on when we're like 50 and be like, hmm, yes, we were alive at the same time. And young people then would be like, cool, you were alive at the time this person was. Did you meet them? And we'd be like, nope. Nope, because we didn't know they existed. Stormy was born in New Orleans, but um, ultimately the family moved to California at some point, I think because interracial marriage became legal in California so that they could get married. And basically she worked as an entertainer, a singer, an MC, a bouncer, a bodyguard, and a volunteer street patrol worker, and was such a badass. She um, spent most of her time like doing gay things in Greenwich Village. I think she lived at the Chelsea Hotel. But she earned the title of Guardians of the Lesbians in the Village from her volunteer street patrol work because she would basically go from, like, gay bar to gay bar and make sure that all the people who were leaving the gay bars were getting home safe and not getting harassed. So she took that, like, really seriously, much more so than everybody else who was doing it. And she, like, had a license for a handgun and, a light- and like, carried a switchblade in her sock. And she was like, I will fight everyone who gets in the way of my baby queers. So she... She was what we all secretly, quietly aspire to be. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. So she 
doesn't really talk about her childhood, at least in interviews, um, largely because there were a lot of accounts of racial violence that she just doesn't really want to talk about. So a lot of her story doesn't really pick up until she starts getting involved with gay things and Greenwich and Stonewall. Um, but before that, she worked as a bodyguard in the mob, or for the mob in Chicago, and then she became the only drag king and MC in the Jewel Box Review, which was this drag show that like toured the US and performed in like Apollo Theater in Harlem mm-hmm. and some other really fancy place that I think was like Carnegie Hall. Um, I don't know if she was with them at the time they performed at Carnegie Hall, but they definitely did. Um, so she was with them from 1955 to 1969. And this was the first racially integrated drag show in North America, and she was the only drag king, and basically was, like, such a badass, and became this sort of, like, parental figure in the group. There's a really good documentary on YouTube that's just, like, her remembering her time with the Jewel Box Review. It's review. R-E-V-U-E, not review. Mm. But she's just, she's, she's, like, this tiny little woman at this point, because she's, like, a little old. Um... And she's still so full of this, like, kick-assness, and I'm just constantly in awe. Good. So Stonewall. She was at Stonewall. This is not a disputed point. Um, It's just disputed as to what she did. Mm. So accounts of what she did vary largely because it's based on hearsay and eyewitness accounts and, like, everything was happening at once. People don't necessarily remember. But it's pretty clear that she either fought four officers and repeatedly escaped while handcuffed and trying to be taken to the police van. Or she may have thrown the first punch. Um, There's definitely evidence that the police were clubbing one butch lesbian, which was the major major catalyst for the uprising. And it was possibly Stormy, who was definitely bleeding from a head wound at one point. Um, So it kind of varies. We don't really know what she did, but basically she fought back and was one of the first people to do so. She also hated calling it a riot. She called it an uprising. And one of the quotes that was reprinted a lot, um, because the New York Times did a bunch of articles about her, especially later in life, because she was a resident of Brooklyn. Mm. Um, So she said, it was a rebellion. It was an uprising, and it was a civil rights disobedience. It wasn't no damn riot. So after Stonewalls, she worked as a bouncer, like, well into her 60s and 70s. Um, So that would have been, like, 1980s, 1990s. For the lesbian bars in New York City... She was an active member of the Stonewall Veterans Association and served on their executive board as treasurer and a couple other things. Um, And she regularly attended the New York City Gay Pride Parade. And then she couldn't later in life. And it was really sad. The New York Times did an article about it. So she lived at the... I was right. She lived at the Chelsea Hotel. um, And then she was hospitalized in 2010 after a bad fall and moved to a nursing home. But this became a, a figure... Or, like, a a point in her life where people started to say, like, why isn't anybody coming to visit her in this nursing home? And then the realization that, like, the old guard was dying, but people weren't really aware of them. So nobody was coming to sort of, like, pay their respects. And so a lot of, like, one of the articles the Times ran was about one of the years she couldn't come to the parade, which I think was probably 2012? Um, And at that point, she was suffering from dementia. She wasn't really sure what was going on. But she, I mean, she was 90 at that point. The the article was sort of about, like, you know, she doesn't really have a lot of visitors here. People don't really seem to know who she is anymore. But she was institutional to 
the establishment of a gay pride parade and the gay rights movement resurfacing. So, like, why? And obviously the, the answer there is that the knowledge gap exists. Mm. Wow. No, it's kind of crazy that no one visited her. Yeah. When she was dying because no one really remembered it anymore. Well, like, she had friends who would come and visit her, but, you know, they were also in their 80s. Exactly. Um, and then she ended up having a legal guardian um, at the end of her life, which I think was the Jewish Council of something. Um, but basically, they were responsible for her well-being and were the, the people who were sort of, like, in charge when she died of, like, executing her will and stuff. But the people from that council came to uh visit her as well but like it was that and like a couple old friends mm. wow now you mentioned a knowledge gap do you want to define that a little bit further i guess i will pull out the quotes um some of her friends said that they had been frustrated by the way she was treated by the authorities and others and they expressed disappointment that mrs delarvier's troubles had not been a widespread concern for many gay and lesbian activists mm. These are all from a New York Times article. And then another one is, I feel like the gay community could really have rallied, but they didn't, said Lisa Canestracci, a longtime friend of Mrs. Delarvier's, who's the owner of the lesbian bar Henrietta Hudson. The young gays and lesbians today have never heard of her, Mrs. Canestracci said, and most of our activists are young. They're in their 20s and early 30s. The community that's familiar with her is dwindling, which is probably the most illustrative of the knowledge gap. Exactly, exactly. I guess I'm like so kind of sitting here trying to think about what caused this and sort of why this exists. And I'm wondering if almost like the fact that the 70s and 80s and early 90s were really dominated it, it, by the AIDS epidemic in queer discourse that I feel like a lot of particularly women of color, queer women of color, trans women have been forgotten because they came in an era before this focus sort of stole queer thought. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And like it kind of makes sense at that time that that was the social group that everyone focused on, given that that was the social group that was dying in droves. But it's largely, to my understanding, it was largely gay men. Exactly. Yep. Also, it turns out uh, Patient Zero, who was thought to have been the reason that the epidemic came to the U.S. was an Air Canada flight attendant, French-Canadian. Um, turns out he was totally innocent. Huh. Yeah, uh, that was in the New York Times a couple of days ago, but uh, new testing and evidence revealed that the strain he had was... There was one that was, like, different that was already prevalent in New York City um, by the time he came and was thought to have started, like, spreading it around. So it was, like, introduced multiple times by different people. Yeah, so this guy got totally slandered for something he didn't even do. But yeah, no, I, I think you make a really good point there with the, the AIDS epidemic, like, disrupting everything. And I think that ties in to the whole, like, HRC, Gay Liberation Front, that was like, we'll come back for you, to the people who literally started the Stonewall riots. And, like... I get a lot the fact that there is a knowledge gap because there's a gap of actual population, but I forget sometimes that, like, a lot of the focus shifted as a result of that, too. So, like, even though lesbians especially weren't as affected, they, the knowledge is still sort of gone because the focus shifted away from them. Mm -hmm. And I think we also really just don't know sort of what the world of lesbians and queer women was like at that point. No, we really don't. 
who was a lesbian in the 1980s, like, were they connected? Did they have friends who were affected by AIDS? Who were the lesbians who may have been affected by this? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the lesbian archives in Brooklyn probably has information, but again, like, that's a lot of that's not online. A lot of that is. You know, if you don't know that the lesbian archives in Brooklyn exists, how are you supposed to find this info? And if you're not going to Brooklyn, how are you supposed to access it? Exactly. And, like, it's not a part of the common conception. Like, to be gay in the 80s is to be in this one very specific world that we know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You're a cis white man who wears tight pants in the 80s. That was how you were queer then. Mm -hmm. That and the left ear piercing, which is another one of those Mm -hmm. gay signals. Um, what is it with jewelry? Is it, is it the left ear or is it the right ear? I thought it was the left ear. I feel like it's so not relevant anymore that no one even remembers. <laughs> People just keep piercing their ears and, like, every, like, athlete who wants to act like they're punk has done it. Exactly. This is a whole thing that I want to do, like, a multi-part major thing on is queer signals in general. Yeah. And, like, the ways in which queer people signal to other queer people, hello, I am queer. And the way that they've become more overt and permanent over mm-hmm. time. So, like, nowadays, there's undershaves, and there were pixie cuts immediately before that. But there's a problem wherein uh, straight people think straight it's people cool. think it's cool. Mm-hmm. And start doing it more and more often, which is, like, fine, good for you, except that it dilutes the power of that signal so that nobody knows who the fuck is queer anymore. It's true. And it constitutes, in my opinion, a form of appropriation. But I feel like I'm not really the person qualified to define that as somebody who is white and therefore, like, guilty by association and also by practice in the past before I knew what it was of, like, appropriating other cultures. But also it makes me really mad when straight people get undercuts. (laughs) Um, Like, honestly, they don't look good. Undercuts do not... Like, the shaved sides look great, but the, like, back of the head shaved undercut looks awful. It is people being driven to the edges of fashion where nothing is attractive anymore. (laughs) And, like, honestly, I see some shaved sides, like, that just look weird. Like, if it's just one side and it's just gone, like, it's disconcerting. Yeah. But it's a queer signal. I don't know. I think on some people maybe it works, but... Basically, straight people, we look really, really weird because we tried to look mostly normal and then y'all took our shit over and over again. (laughs) So we had to keep reinventing ourselves. Yes. But yeah, any other... um... I also really, really like the fact that Stormy... What is her last name again? Delarver. Delarvery. Delarvery. Yes. Stormy Delarvery made a point of not using the word riots Mm -hmm. there's like i don't know there's a lot of discourse today around like the words that we use in particular around queer people and i feel like with all of the words that we're questioning the fact that we don't really question the word riots as much as we should is like it's a thing but i wonder if there's something to owning the word riot it's interesting because I mean, there's you often see things like reminders. Stonewall was a police riot, and like putting it into the context of the current history of like police brutality and pol- anti-police movements. Mm-hmm. But then when you also think about it, like we have a problem when these modern things are characterized as riots. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
and especially when they primarily involve people of color and i'm thinking here specifically of the um the violence but also just the anger and the protests that occurred in baltimore mm -hmm. i guess last year yeah. i don't really remember but the whole point being that like this violence had occurred on behalf of Freddie Gray and people were calling it a riot because windows were being smashed and fires were being started. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that happened at Stonewall, but we don't seem to have any problem calling it a riot. And I think a lot of, I've seen and heard um, the rhetoric that says, you know, the first gay pride parade was a riot mm -hmm. and they're referring to Stonewall. Exactly, exactly. But, I mean, it's interesting, like, Stonewall was a response to violence being enacted against the queer community indirectly and directly mm -hmm. in that moment. And can we call a reaction to violence a riot? Like, if it's in defense and if it's a response, is that a riot? Because I always think of riots as sort of coming out of nowhere. The angry mob with pitchforks. Yes. Exactly. And this was less an angry mob with pitchforks so much as a minority fighting for its life at this point. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I read when I was researching Stormy that I didn't really get when I was researching um, Sylvia Rivera is that, you know, this was when the police showed up, the one of the biggest issues was that the people who were in there were largely not white because they'd been kicked out of the tonier bars so they were here because this was a place that would accept them both as queer people and as people who were not white and so there's that added factor of race when you, it comes to the brutality that the police were enacting at stonewall and so you know even more so these people were expected to kind of just like sit there and take it and so the fact that they didn't sit there and take it, I think, leads to it possibly be call being called a riot. And I think that has to do more with race than with um, queerness and response to that. Agreed. Agreed. This relation between queerness and race and violence, you can draw a thread really from Stonewall to Orlando this summer. Like, mm -hmm. there's not much difference in what those situations were and how they started and then the reaction to them because... I think people are, for some reason, afraid when queer people of color gather. And when they fight back. And the thing is, like, Stonewall was not the first riot or upset, but it was the biggest one, and it was the one that sort of spawned the marches um, that later became the gay pride parades we know now. Um, and, I, and sort of the first parade was officially a year after the Stonewall riots in 1970. But I think there is definitely a connection between like Stonewall being queer people of color to Orlando. But I think the responses were different in some ways. Yeah. And I definitely, you briefly mentioned like sort of the violence around Freddie Gray and Baltimore that we've been seeing recently, um, just in the past couple of years. And I'm starting to wonder like now that Stonewall has been made into like a national historical site which was a big deal which is a really really big deal if like a yeah. hundred years from now we're going to look back on like the, the movement for black lives and sort of immortalize it in the same way mm -hmm. I mean I think it's also worth pointing out that like it hasn't been 50 years since Stonewall True. Um, which means that this national historical monument did not come at the 50 year anniversary so there was no sort of timeliness to it in that sense and that the timeliness i think came largely from the supreme court decision mm. but that also like this is a democratic president who designated this it's 
our first black president who designated this. And, you know, George Bush was not about to do this. What is the impact there of somebody standing in front of Stonewall where, you know, 40 some odd years ago, other people of color who were queer were fighting in the same way that the Black Lives Matter movement is fighting now. And like, what does it say that our first black president was doing that? Mm. Basically, queerness and people of color are like a very intertwined topic. That's why intersectionality exists. Wow. Exactly. Queer people of color do not have the same experience as white queers, which is apparently hard to understand if you're HRC or most mainstream queer organizations. And like not to shit on the HRC, but also I just like I have a lot of issues with their history and like generally their practices, but also I recognize that they've done important work. And so I have this sort of like conflicted feeling about them. Um, And it largely comes from sort of people like Sylvia Rivera, where, you know, the HRC was and predecessors were kind of like, we'll come back for you. Mm. Um, And this is something we discussed a lot on that episode. Exactly. I've mostly given up on them as an organization and like do not care for them at this point almost exclusively because of the way that they deal with trans people. Yeah. They're trying to be better, but it's kind of like, it's too little too late at this point. Like, you had the opportunity from the get-go to include trans people who were literally there, and you didn't. There are, like, so many organizations that are focused on trans people and led by trans people of color that are already doing this work and that you can support with whatever means you have to support them. And exactly. Like, pushing for HRC to do better is, I think, a valuable thing. Because they can, and they should, especially because they're such a national organization with a lot of funds. Yeah. Exactly. If the support of, like, all of... I think Amelia mentioned in our first episode the phrase, um, queers who are easier to swallow for society mm-hmm. in general. But yeah. if the world's more palatable queers, people who are only marginalized once over... Mm-hmm we're more of a force supporting people who are twice marginalized, people who are trans, etc, etc. I think we would see a lot more getting done. But how much would it become tokenized? True, true. Um, And I think that's one of the issues, and I think also, like, you know, if you're a person of color who has been systematically, like, oppressed and rejected from the mainstream gay movement, why... Like, what makes you want to come back in? And what do people need to do who are not in your sort of situation to be able to make you feel like this is a place that has your interests now, even though, you know, for 40 years we have not done that. Exactly. Um, And I think there's a lot of apologies and reparations that need to be made and a lot of trust that needs to be reestablished. I'm trying to figure out a way to, like, articulate the connection to this with the whole, like, knowledge gap between generations mm-hmm. but i think part of you know reestablishing that trust is recognizing the people like delarvier and the people like sylvia rivera who were instrumental in the initial movement and have not been remembered in the way they should have been exactly sort of the first step is understanding that from the very beginning this has been a movement that has been driven by women of color and trans women of color yeah also totally different subject she could sing 
Really? Yeah, really? like that oh. was part of her act at the Jewel Box review, and you can listen to audio clips of her singing, and I swear to God, she has the smoothest voice, and it's beautiful. You mentioned, like, being the only drag king in the Jewel Box review, and mm-hmm. I don't know, I find it so interesting to see drag culture in that time versus drag culture today, mm-hmm. and also thinking about how drag kings aren't really a thing anymore. As far as I know. Well, I mean, from what oh, I they definitely are. Are they? Yeah, they're kind of a thing, but they've always been a smaller thing. It's been a smaller thing compared to drag queens, and I wonder how much that has to do with the sort of misogyny and the the, the male gaze of seeing like femininity performed mm-hmm. at this sort of like over the top level. Exactly. Um, versus performing masculinity, which is seen as more acceptable in the ways we talk about like androgyny being like towards the masculine. Yeah, true. Um, true. But yeah, no, drag kings are definitely still a thing. Mm. And I feel like it's so much harder to do, just like, given the fact that as someone who is femme, looking properly androgynous or actually outright cross-dressing is incredibly difficult because it's become more and more socially acceptable and like within the norms of femininity to dress more and more masculinely. Mm -hmm. So like, if a man wears a dress, he is cross-dressing for the most part. But a woman can completely dress like a man and have it be part of her everyday life and have no one question it for the most part. But I think that a lot of that has to do with what we consider like the aesthetics of lesbianism and how a lot of that tends to be more androgynous and more towards like what we consider butch and how if men are seeing as being effeminate it's seen as like stepping down or downgrading themselves because femininity is seen as subservient to masculinity and is seen as lesser than and so it's one thing for you know the sort of lesser than aesthetic to become more like the masculine aesthetic but it's very very different and in some ways much more dangerous to be seen Mm -hmm. as like going backwards i used a lot of quotes in that and i hope it came through in my voice (laughs) a lot of air quotes going backwards populated by many air quotes lately (laughs) yeah filled floor to ceiling air quotes but yeah, no, she was just like, I she cried when doing all of my research for this. I was like, what an incredible woman. I'm so sad that she like recently passed away and I had no idea she was a person until she, after she died. But like, she was unbelievable. She's so fighting. She's just so fighting. feisty. She's like, I don't like, like, oh God, I don't like ugly people. And that was her word for like people who were rude or sort of antagonistic. And she's just like, I know somebody's ugly when I see them. Um, and I didn't write that quote down and I should have, but it's one that's quoted often. But it's one that you just happened to memorize in your yeah. research. So. <laughs> <laughs> didn't go to nerd camp for nothing. <laughs> that was, those were finger guns. Those, you can't hear finger guns because they're a motion and not a sound. <laughs> this is the struggle with a podcast medium. But also it means I can come to the recording studio in sweatpants. True, true. It does seem like she wants to fight everyone, and I, like, relate to that on a very personal level. Just, like, as a human being who also wants to fight everyone. (laughs) Yeah. This, again, goes back to the questions of, like, race and gender performativity, Mm -hmm. but she carried, like, a handgun, and she was pretty intimidating when she did a lot of her, like, volunteer patrol things. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that had to do with the fact that she was not dressed in drag as a performativity, but, like she tended to dress in a very masculine manner when she was doing this, so she ended up, like, looking to passers-by like a man going about his business. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I wonder how much of her success and her ability to be the guardian of the lesbians in the village came from the fact that she wasn't dressing in a particularly feminine manner. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what allowed her to have this kind of status. Exactly. And I think that there's something sort of almost alarming there about the fact that there's such a, like, strong correlation between masculinity and violence. Just, Mm -hmm. like, the fact that we do see her as more masculine because she carried a handgun and a switchblade. And because she dressed that way, I think. True, largely. true. Also, it's interesting how the narrative of, like, women at Stonewall has been so written over because we do associate masculinity with violence. And mm-hmm. the idea that this was a an uprising led by women on so many levels does not compute with what we want to see out of this event. Which is why the protagonist of the movie was a white guy. Of course. Because, because I mean, who's more violent than white men? Actually, I think no one. Exactly. <laughs> Can we pull up some stats here? <laughs> uh, I don't even know, but uh, actually, I do know the majority of um, mass shootings are committed by white men. Mm-hmm. So. Which makes sense. True. <laughs> and also just the fact that white men can get away with shit. Yeah. 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 We have a bad habit of there's like lots of points that we get to consistently in every episode. <laughs> and it involves throwing white men under the bus a lot. And I feel it's a little bad about that. Um, complaining about cis white men. Oh, yep. <laughs> Complaining about cis white gay men in particular. Yes. Complaining about the HRC. Complaining which about is the HRC. Run by cis white gay men. Pretty much every time. Nerd camp is brought up yeah. pretty much every time. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm talking about there. Like, where is this coming up? Pretty much every time you talk about yourself, Kit. Wow. Okay. Wow. Doxed. Yeah. So basically, uh, I guess I can start talking about all these quotes that I've saved. <laughs> Which really at this point is one because a lot of what I had saved was about the knowledge gap and I used all of those. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> this is from the New York Times obituary. Tall, androgynous, and armed. She had a state gun permit. Mrs. DeLarvery roamed lower 7th and 8th avenues and points in between into her 80s, patrolling the sidewalks and checking in at lesbian bars. She was on the lookout for what she called ugliness, any form of intolerance, bullying, or abuse of her, quote, baby girls love that so much. She was yes. like the guardian angel of the lesbians. This is like and still such a thing in queer culture though. Yeah. yeah. And I think there is a strong system of older queers look out for the baby gays. To such an extent that we use the word baby gays. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well you have like your baby queer phase and that's mm-hmm. when like the older queers take you under their wing. They tell you like you know this is like if you're looking to sort of be more androgynous or you want to bind or you want to try different kinds of makeup like this exactly. is what you do. They take you to get your first undercut. Or in some cases, they give you your first undercut. Exactly. And you have older queers take care of younger queers. And I think a lot of that, like, strong culture comes from the fact that people were so socially fringe and in such danger. That they had to make their own sort of, like, chosen families. Exactly. It's also interesting now that I think a lot of that has moved online. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of Facebook groups, I think you get people, um, because you can make groups for really specific things, you get, like, Groups of queer people or, like, groups of queer fat people who are supportive of mm-hmm. each other. Or like, groups of queer sex workers and, like, lots of different spaces that people are building. And through these online platforms, you can really connect all over the place. Trans yeah. people, in, in particular, yes. are so active on Reddit. Just really? So active on Reddit. Well, there's all the Tumblr blogs, too, about, mm-hmm. like, non-binary resources and, like, and, like just 
archives like of answered questions. Tumblr is where all of the non-binary people seem to have started ending up, and like a lot of the trans population has found itself on Reddit. That's interesting because I think it speaks a lot to the sort of like communities that are created, um, where it's like if a couple people move over to one platform, then suddenly more people move over because they know they'll be accepted on that platform. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because once you know that a place <laughs> is full of people who are kind of like you, you can actually be you there. Yeah, and it feels safer to do that. Exactly. And you've got people like Stormy who are the guardians. Oh my exactly. god. She's like, I wish I could have seen that, honestly. Just mm -hmm. like her patrolling the streets. Yes. I want to be one of her baby girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the extent to which that relationship has gotten much less serious has like changed depending on how stigmatized your social group is mm -hmm. like i feel like lesbians now are like significantly less like aggressively protective of young lesbians there's a very like let me show you the ropes thing but there's less like i am very concerned about your health and safety i feel mm -hmm. but like polyamorous groups are still hardcore underground uh you find your way into them because you meet one person and that is the only way you ever find your way in it's like your gateway basically yeah. exactly um but i don't know if i agree with that in my experience necessarily and like i speak as somebody who is bisexual and not a lesbian but um like most of the queer people i met when i came to college and that was largely where i stopped being a baby gay mm. um were like very much still fiercely protective and sort of fiercely like aware of their experience and wh what they sort of would want to be able to see replicated and what they would want like younger queers to very much stay away from. Mm. Um, and some of that has to do with the fact that we were all we're all college aged. True. But like I think some of it does have to do with the fact of like you know you need to be careful about like. XYZ, like, this is the institutional memory of this place, um, and I wonder also how that, how much that contributes, um, and how much, how useful that is, especially when you talk about things like online culture, where there is no real institutional memory because it's not linked to a specific space, it's linked mm. to a cyber space. Yeah. Mm. But that also connects to the whole knowledge gap and the fact that, like, people didn't come to visit her when she was in a nursing home in Brooklyn. Exactly. And I also really like the role that allies tend to play in finding, like, new queer people who are not connected to other queer people and introducing them. That is um, good allyship right there. That is, that is what you do. That is a thing that you do. But not in, like, a let's set you up to date way, but, like, in a... But in a, like, oh. Let me introduce you to my gay friend who can help you better than I can. Exactly. Yes. Who <laughs> knows what the fuck they're doing. Um... When I came out as bi, my mom has a pair of friends since high school who are a lesbian couple and was like, you're coming with me to meet these people. And they explained to me that if I ever find myself in any sort of trouble where they live and that their door is always open. And I, like, at the time was very overwhelmed and, like, why are people so nice to me? But, like, I get it now. Mm -hmm. My mom actually has a friend who was a cruise director my mom was on. Now they're friends, but this friend works at Stonewall, actually. Really? Like, which is amazing. My mom was, is going to take me there for my 21st birthday, which is fantastic. But oh my God! this friend is now like married to a woman, mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure she's bi, and mm -hmm. her wife is a lesbian. And when I came out to my mom, we, and the next time I was in New York, we like all went out to lunch, and it was really cute oh and God. wonderful because like, here are people who can relate to me who are adults and who are gay married. 
the way I want to be gay married. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, no, like, I can't, I didn't really have that experience because, A, I didn't realize till I was almost a senior in high school that I was even a little bit queer. B, I dated a boy for three years, and so I wasn't really, like, I was queer, but it wasn't a queer relationship. Mm. Or it was, but it wasn't seen that way. And so it wasn't really discussed until after I came to college, and then I was like, oh, holy shit, I'm gay. <laughs> um, I just want to kiss girls. And then, like, at that point, I started meeting more queer people who were out, but in a lot of ways that means, like, a lot of my queer role models are only a couple years older than me. And so it's sort of weird to think about a long-term future in less of an abstract sense because I don't have adult gay married queer role models in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I'm Aubrey. I'm Megan. I'm Kit. And, and this, this has, has been, been Quilt Bag History. I'm so proud of you. Kit. Quilt Bag History would like to thank Elise Brown for our wonderful intro and outro music, which you should be hearing right now, Kit Mitchell, our creative mastermind and entire research team, and Averil Angle, Genevieve Huang, and myself, Aubrey Simonson, as our editing team.